All right, um, we're going to jump right into the scripture. We are in John chapter 9, just zipping along in John's gospel. And this is the case of the man born blind. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Okay, option A, the man himself sinned in the womb. Option B, his parents must have sinned. Okay. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And that simply means Jesus is aware that his time is coming to an end and he is going to do all that God has called him to do here on earth. All right? As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And as is true with a number of the miracles in John's gospel, then the rest of the chapter is devoted to a dialogue that takes place after this miracle. We're not going to cover that today, but we're just going to look at the miracle. Now, let's, let's attack the question that's on everybody's mind. What's the deal with spitting on the ground and putting mud on his eyes? Why the mud? Right? Well, I, I think we have to conclude that, that the, the spitting in the mud was not absolutely necessary for Jesus to heal him because there are miracles in the Bible where Jesus heals people long distance, right? Um, so, so it's not some kind of uh, voodoo where Jesus is doing a magic potion, right? So why the mud? And I think uh, it makes sense to me to ask, what are the symbols going on here? All right. Now, John, remember, he begins his gospel by telling us that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is the maker. Jesus is the creator. So that should take us back to the early chapters of Genesis. And when we read about God creating man, what does he use? Mud, yeah, dust, mud. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. I think John is taking us back to the original creation, and now he's going to create sight. He's going to create seeing eyes in this man. Another symbolism that's going on here. Um, where does he send him to wash? Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And, and these parentheses, they're in the text. These, these are not my parentheses. John writes, 
which means sent. So he sent him to the pool named Sent to be healed. Now what's going on here? 33 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks of the Father who sent me. Jesus is the sent one. So put this all together. Jesus is revealing that he is the sent one from the Father. He is God the Son, the creator, the giver of life, and the giver of sight. All right? So that's, that's some of the, uh, the symbolism around what's going on here. Now, I want us to see if we can learn three lessons from this healing. All right? Lesson number one. Not all suffering is the result of a specific sin. Notice the question. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? A, this man. Or B, his parents. That he was born blind. They have a one-to-one -one correspondence view between suffering and sin. If they're suffering, somebody must have sinned. Either he did it in the womb, or it was his parents. Now, which one is it, Jesus? And, and uh, that's a classic uh, example of the fallacy, the either-or fallacy, right? The uh, false dilemma fallacy. If you hold to this, then you must also hold to this. No, not necessarily. What if there's 27 positions in between? Jesus says... It was not that this man sinned or his parents. Your two extremes are not the only options. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. So, so let's do a little, uh, a little thinking about sin and suffering. All pain is the result of sin entering into the world, generally speaking. But not all pain is the result of a specific sin. Okay? Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, his first sin, brings sin into the world. And what's the result of that? and death through sin and so death spread to all men and then this is this is complicated because all sinned but when you read the context of Romans 5 because all sin has to mean we all sinned in Adam Adam as our representative okay let's not worry about that right now but notice once sin enters into this perfect world the death now enters into the world and involved in death is disease and decay and pain, okay? There is not always a one-to-one -one correspondence between a particular type of suffering and somebody committing sin, all right? There's a generalized suffering that has come upon the entire world because sin has entered into the world. Right? It's too simplistic to have that one-to-one -one, uh, correspondence view. You know, Job's friends had that view. Job was covered in boils and his 
family dies and all, he loses all his wealth and he's sitting on the ash heap scraping his sores and his friends come and they sit down and for seven days they don't say a word. They just sympathize with his pain. And then they make a mistake. They open their mouths and they go, all right, fess up, Job. What'd you do? Well, I, I didn't do anything. No, come on. You, nobody suffers this badly unless they've sinned very badly. And they had the same view that the, the disciples have. A one-to-one -one correspondence view of sin and suffering. Okay? Um, there are times when the unrighteous prosper and are healthy and are wealthy. And there are times that the righteous suffer and are poor, and are persecuted, right? So, so there isn't a one-to-one -one correspondence, right? Um, now, having clarified that, let's move on to the second point. Jesus is the redeemer, which means the restorer of the fallen world. When Adam and Eve sinned, we call that the fall. That's when sin enters into the world. God actually curses the ground. Ladies, have you, uh, when you gave birth, did it hurt? Thank your mother Eve for that, right? Um, farmers, do you have to, to put pesticide? I don't know, is this a politically incorrect thing? Do you put pesticide or what do you put? Do you go, how do you swat those mosquitoes and bugs and kill the organic treatments? <laughs> what? I don't know. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in strange territory here, so I, I don't know. But uh, apparently weeds and thorns and farming, is, it's hard, right? Because of the curse, right? But Jesus is going to reverse the curse. And let me show you where we are headed, where Jesus is taking this world. Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. No more funerals. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying and look at this, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So, so we are headed for a painless eternity the way it was originally supposed to be. Okay? And, and these bodies that some are blind, some have cancer, so everybody has something because you're not all going to live. We're all, we're all struggling with something. Here's the future of your body. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, what is put in the ground when you die, is perishable. It dies. What is raised when you're resurrected, it's imperishable. You will have a body that never dies. It is sown in dishonor. Old and painful. It's put in the ground but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. 
Jesus is going to bring about the restoration of the world and your bodies. No more blindness. Right? No more pain even. Right? Raising Lazarus from the dead. We haven't hit that yet. That's in chapter 11. That's a foretaste of the future resurrection that Jesus will bring about. This blind man's eyes being restored is a foretaste of what we're talking about here, of Revelation 21.4, of perfection. Okay? Now, what are we to do with this healing? Should we pray for healing? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I would just add, though, that when we pray for God to heal, we need to uh, bow our knee to him and allow him to run the timing on when he heals and how he heals. Okay? Um, let me give you four things God can do when we pray for a person's healing. All right? Um, number one, he can, he can miraculously heal, like with this man. He can instantaneously, miraculously heal. Okay? Um, let, let me just ask this. Have, have any of you, either yourself or a family member or somebody you've prayed for, have, have any of you ever seen a miraculous healing? Raise your hand. If, okay. Look, look at this. Right? Um, you know, Josh, our son, five years ago, was hit by a truck going 40 miles an hour. While he was running, he wasn't in a car, he was running. And he was thrown through the air, landed on his head. Um, everybody said that should have killed him. And uh, all he had was a little, uh, a broken rib, punctured his lung a little bit. Now, he had a splitting headache, right? Um, I, and I don't know that you'd call that a miraculous healing. Maybe it was a, a miraculous protection as the truck hit him at the right angle, at the right speed, and he landed. I, I call it a miracle, okay? So God can and does do miraculous healings, right? But a, a second way God can heal is medically, with a medical healing, okay? Okay. Um, just because we're so quick to grab two Tylenol when we have a headache and it goes away, should not God get the glory for that? Didn't God bring about the technology and the advances in medicine that, that we do have medicine and we have doctors and we have surgeons and nurses and so forth? Just because God uses means to an end, he still can heal through those means. So that's a reason for praise. Now, a third thing God can do when it comes to pain is he can say, I'm not going to heal you right now. But I am going to give you the grace you need to endure. All right? Um, Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul, actually says that he was caught up into heaven and had a great revelation about God. He said, I wasn't allowed to speak about it. 
So you go, what did he see? Couldn't tell. But because of uh, these revelations, he had a tendency to become proud. Well, I've been to heaven, and you haven't, right? So what does God give him? Some kind of a physical pain, right? So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God had a purpose in not healing Paul. And that purpose was so Paul would not become self-sufficient and arrogant, but dependent upon God. But God promises, I will give you the grace and the strength to endure this suffering until resurrection day, or until your death and then resurrection day. Okay? Uh, another way God helps us when we ask for healing. He may say no, not now, but he gives us, I just call it people grace. He gave Paul individual grace to endure, but many times God's way of helping us endure suffering is with the help of people. Yeah, medical people, but also just the family of God. We, we come around one another and whether there's a healing or not, you know, sometimes w the best thing you can do is just tell a person you care. All right? It doesn't take away the pain. It doesn't heal them miraculously. But that is part of the grace that God uses. And you know about that. You know uh, when people are praying for you and when they visit with you, um, God uses that to comfort, give endurance. So, the, the second major point here is that Jesus is the redeemer. He can redeem miraculously, medically. He can give grace to endure. He can give people to endure. But he, he can heal. We just got to entrust the timing of that to him. Right? Now, last thing I want to cover is this point. God is both sovereign and good. Okay? What, why, did, uh, why did this man... Uh, what, why, why was he born blind? Was it his parents or him? Jesus says, no. So that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay? There was a different purpose, but it involved the glory of God. Okay? Now, um, when suffering, we must hold on Romans 8.28. Okay? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God is good and God is sovereign and he is working even this suffering together for your good. Okay? Now, um, theologians have different ways to process that verse. 
me give you two of the, the, the main schools of thought here. One is this. God is sovereign over everything, including this suffering, including this disability, and he is using that and working that together for good. In other words, let's call that the sovereignty position. Second way people deal with this whole complexity of suffering and God is they say, well, there are some things, actually many things, that are even out of God's control, but he's doing his best to work them together for good. He's cleaning up the mess, but he's not in control of the mess. He's not over, he, he's not sovereign over it. He's saying, oh, what a mess, I will clean that up, right? Now, as tempting as it may be to embrace number two, to try to defend God's goodness, I think if we say things are outside of God's control, are we not robbing people of an all-powerful God? And ultimately, are we not robbing them of a good God who can't redeem things? You know, if there are multitudes of things out of God's control, and when you ask people in this school, well, what, what's out of his control? They say, well... All human decision is out of God's control. So think about that. Seven billion people on the planet, moment by moment, making decisions. And many of those decisions interconnected in affecting others. So trillions of decisions that people make. That's out of God's control because God can't be sovereign over people's choices. And then I guess he... He's not sovereign over chromosomal differences and viruses. So there's a whole world of micro uh, virus that God is not in control of. Right? Don't we end up robbing people of a God who can answer prayer? Lord, please heal so-and-so. God says, I'm trying, but, you know, there's only so much I can do. Now, if we go back to number one, that God is in sovereign control over everything, there is a version of number one that says, well, there's two kinds of sovereignty. There is um, God decreeing everything, and then there's, secondly, God permitting some things. Like when Satan comes to uh, uh, God and says, Hey, Job, uh, can I attack Job? And God gives permission. And some find comfort in that view, that there's a permissive will of God under the sovereignty of God. Okay? Others say, well, whether he ordains it or permits it, it's still ultimately under God's control. So... Um, However you want to nuance that, I think you must hold on to the fact that God is good and God is sovereign. 
When you let go of either one of those, your view of God, I think, will swirl into dangerous places. We must see that God is all-powerful. He's all-wise. He's able to answer prayer. He's able to bring about the good that he promises. He is working all things together for good, not just some. Right? And Jesus says, this man, born blind, is for the glory of God. We may not understand how it all works together, but please do not reduce your view of God because things are hard. Let, let me end with, uh, let me tell you about a guy named John Knight. Um, he, he was attending a church that was a solid Bible teaching church. And then his wife had their first baby. baby's name was Paul. And um, the baby was born blind and autistic. And they prayed, and the baby was not miraculously healed. And here we are, I, I think 20 years later, and that uh, child is still uh, special needs, highly dependent on his parents. And he became, when they, they first had Paul, he became furious at God and Christians. And he left the church. By, by the way, just a little note. Sometimes we think it's programs that will attract and keep people and potlucks and the music. and You know, sometimes people are just mad at God. Right? Sometimes there are spiritual things going on. Now, of course, when they leave, they'll say it was the coffee. Right? But sometimes people just say, I don't want to worship that God. Right? Now, in the midst of his anger toward God, there were people in the church who didn't let go of him. They just kept in contact. And he says, God showed him his self-righteousness and he went through a deep repentance for having what he would say blasphemous thoughts about God. And God enabled him to see who God truly was and embrace a deep love and a trust in Christ. And now, he's all in serving the Lord. And he writes, uh, uh, he's done a lot of writing on disability and the church. And, and let me close, and he, you can Google this, uh, John Knight. He's got little short articles, and I read a whole bunch of them. And let me close with just five um, little tidbits for the issue of dealing with disability, ministry, the church, and so forth. All right? Um, first of all, words. He says, when I lived with a hard, cold heart, I looked for offenses and lashed out at those who offended me by their wrong selection of terms. You know, pe people talk about your son being crippled. That, no, that's not a good word. Right? 
victims, victim of this. So there are bad word choices, but he's writing here more for himself or maybe those of you who have disability or, or, or those who are disabled in your family. Um, he said, when people use the wrong words, it used to fuel his bitterness. Thankfully, God has been working to soften that heart. But I live with the understanding that words can be received in a variety of ways. Acting tentatively does not make Christ look beautiful, and inaction is the most unloving thing of all. In other words, somebody with a uh, family with a disabled child, you go, I, I don't know what to say. He would say, go ahead and take a risk and say something rather than say nothing. And then pray that your love will be what is seen not so much the words. And then for those who have disabilities, look for the heart of the person, not that they have a perfect vocabulary in knowing how to say this. Right? Um, second thing he, he talks about, be proactive. He says, many families by necessity must focus their attention on the big issues and won't be responsive to the question, what can I do for you? If you add to their list of things to do, like texting them or emailing when something is needed, they won't do it, which means you should take the initiative after prayerful consideration. In other words, rather than saying, hey, if you need anything, let me know, how about you pray about it and you say, hey, listen, we'd really like to give you and your, your spouse a night out. Can, can we watch your kids for you? Okay. Or, hey, we make a mean casserole. Can, can, we, can we provide a meal for you? All right. We know you have a, big, uh, you have a long trip, a hospital trip. to. Go. Can I give you a gas card? Okay, so be proactive, not just, um, hey, if you need something, let me know. All right. Number three, abominate the prosperity gospel. Um, he writes about this African family where uh, the little girl had severe disabilities and I can't remember if she died. I think she did die. Um, so he talked with this man. He and his wife have suffered greatly. The response from some of the Christian leaders he knows makes me sick. Confess your sins, they told him. If you confess your sins, you will be made well. Others even said they had received a prophetic word that she would leave the hospital. She didn't. If you need, give more money and it will be returned to you in blessing. If you experience sickness, it's your fault. Enough faith. He told me that disability was presented as God's curse on the family. Prosperity preachers don't talk about disability serving the great purpose of God. I want the cruel, vicious, unbiblical, prosperity gospel to go away forever. Okay. Another practical thing. Remember the siblings. Okay. There, there's the dis disabled child, but what about the other siblings? Recently, we attended a church gathering with the entire family. Paul, Paul is well known and kindly regard, regarded by our church family. But I was equally encouraged that each of my other children had an adult who either took special care to interact with them personally or inquired of me about them, sometimes not asking about Paul at all. I left that gathering affirmed, refreshed, and encouraged and connected, and so did my children. 
Okay? And, and one last practical thing. Um, a plea to parents of children with disabilities. If you're in a faithful, Bible-saturated church, hang in there with them while they figure things out, even when they don't get it, even when they hurt you, joy will come. Okay? Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are good. You are sovereign. And we are in a cursed, fallen world. And there's pain and there's suffering. Lord, I pray that as we look at this miraculous healing, it would remind us that you're the Redeemer. One day you will restore all things. And we entrust the timing to you. Sometimes you miraculously heal. Sometimes you just give us the grace to endure. I pray, Lord, that we would not lose our confidence in your goodness. And then, Lord, as we as we see those who have disability, family members, just do a work in our heart, Lord, where we can encourage uh, those families and bring glory to Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.